was actually originally a Sainsbury's advert. It's deeply moving, but it seemed entirely appropriate to play uh, this year, being 100 years since the end of World War I, a longing at that time for peace. Of course, we know that the world hasn't always been a place of peace, and the war to end all wars didn't really, sadly, end all wars. But it was a season of um, a beautiful moment of peace. In that moment, on Christmas Day in World War I, where two warring nations came together, they said at the end of that, Christmas is for sharing. Well, I hope that's partly why you're here tonight, to share the Christmas story with us, to share it with one another. And I'm just going to sh- just share a little bit of reflections tonight as we draw towards the close of our service. I remember the first time I saw uh, the Star Wars film when I was quite young. And I mean the real one, the proper one, the first one, which technically wasn't the first one. It was actually Star Wars 4. I hope some of you are with me on this. Uh, But we didn't know that at the time. It was incredible. I was um, very young. I was probably about seven. And the drama, the epic scenes of watching this incredible film unfold in front of us, the wild, desolate alien landscapes, the vastness of that starry, starry galaxy far, far away. And all those baddies and the goodies, white-clad, laser-toting armies of doom, robots with attitude, a princess with amazing buns, hair, hair buns, if you're not following me, a hero, a handsome rogue, a walking hairy carpet thing, and a terrifyingly evil masked asthmatic some black-cloaked, terrifying entity. I mean, what the heck? Have you ever walked into a film halfway through and thought, what, who, why, when, what, what on earth's going on? Well, that was Star Wars 4, A New Hope, it was called. No wonder it felt like we'd all missed a whole lifetime of backstory. We had. Part one, parts 1 to 3 were still in George Lucas's fevered imagination. We were literally joining in halfway through an epic story. Why is the princess running? From whom? How did she get the Death Star plans? These are all questions I'm sure you've asked yourselves. Why did they even build a Death Star? Where's Darth Vader from? Who's Skywalker? Who's Ben Kenobi? Why is C-3PO so annoying? And how, how did Han Solo get to make the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs? That's just for the geeks out there amongst you. A couple of us, maybe, that really love those films. You see, the backstory is everything. I love films. Any real film buffs out there? I love films. I love watching films. I love going to the cinema with my wife and watching them on DVD. I don't know if any of you have seen the film Memento. Anyone seen Memento? Get it on DVD. Well, the story starts from both ends, the end and the beginning, at the same time, beginning with the climax of the film, somewhere in the middle where the front and the back end meet together and the kind of colour, a bit shot in colour and the bits in black and white, collide. It is quite a confusing film, if I'm really honest, and most people don't really get it, including myself. The whole chronology is kind of all over the place and you, if, if you walked in a few minutes after the film started, you wouldn't have a clue what was going on. But you know, for many people, I think the Christmas story is a bit like that joining the account at the midpoint and not really understanding the whole epic, glorious narrative that surrounds it. So tonight, briefly, you'll be pleased to know, I want to look at a character very much on the periphery of the Christmas story, of the manger scene, but actually who at my first glance seems seems a bit like an extra, 
just someone bolted on. Not really a big part of the story, just a bit part. Another jab of the hut, if you like. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about Star Wars, but bear with me. Tonight, I want to look at Caesar Augustus. Here's a picture. He's pointing to the emergency exit. If you grew up with with the Christmas story, or you were listening to Luke's account that was read tonight from Luke's gospel, or maybe you 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 wanted to be Mary or Joseph or baby Jesus, but you got to be the narrator, which wasn't a very sexy role, if we're honest, but you got to tell the story. Well, you'll remember these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then in a moment, he's forgotten. Well, here he is, looking a bit pasty, but this is him. This is Caesar Augustus. You know, it's easy to read those words or hear those words and then move right past him because he just seems like an extra, a bit part in the story. He was one and a half thousand miles away from the original manger scene some 2,000 years ago. But tonight, I want us to understand that actually he played a really key role in the story, and then explain something really remarkable about who is actually in control in this often crazy, uncertain world that we live in. So, okay, who is this Caesar Augustus? Well, Augustus, interesting, was probably the most powerful man alive at the time of Jesus, arguably the most powerful human being in history up to that point. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen those T-shirts. You know, T-shirts with, low, with kind of statements on are quite big at the moment. There's one that says, I'm kind of a big deal. Um, you'll be pleased to know I don't have one of those T-shirts, but I have seen people wearing them. Well, this is a guy who could have worn that T-shirt. I'm kind of a big guy. And he really, really legitimately was. Augustus was a really big deal. If anyone thought he was completely in control, well, it was Augustus. He actually was. Here's another picture of him. There he is pointing to the toilets this time. He was a man who knew where everything was and told everyone to go there. As you can see, he's always pointing in his statues or his pictures. Do this, go there, do what I tell you, I know what I'm talking about. Who was he? What's he about? Well, he was impressive, he was very powerful. Anyone really like history here? Any history buffs? One in the front row, great. Well, I'll just talk to you tonight. Um, It's good to know a bit of history, it's good to know a bit of the backstory. Augustus originally was called Octavian. There he is. And when he was a young boy, he was adopted by Julius Caesar. Now, you've all heard of Julius Caesar. Say, yes, Tim. Well done. You're all still out there. Good. Caesar um, was killed. Actually, he was adopted by Julius Caesar. um, And actually, Octavius was named heir when he was a teenager. um, And when he was a teenager at that period of time, Caesar was killed. Do you remember the story from Shakespeare? All you Shakespeare buffs, what happened? Remember what Caesar said when he was stabbed? Oh, stop! No, what did he say? Et tu, Brutus. Yes, absolutely. Brute, Brute, Brutus, all the same. So he was talking of his friend Brutus, um, who, who had just literally stabbed him. And that was the assassination that started a civil war that ended with Octavian defeating Mark Antony, Cleopatra, some of these names you'll have heard of, at the Battle of Actium, and, and, and actually secured Octavius as the really new big cheese in that part of the world, and in fact, globally. Octavian took control and proved actually to be a really stealthy, really, really competent political leader, actually, transforming Rome from a republic to an empire, and he became the emperor. 
and he was named Caesar Augustus, the first dictator, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And actually, he brought unparalleled peace and prosperity to the whole of the Roman Empire. It was incredible what he did. He, he, he enlarged the size of it enormously. It doubled in the 46 years he was reigning. Egypt was added, Spain was added, much of Europe was added. He built huge, vast cities. Um, he connected the empire through elaborate road systems that he had built. He invented the world's first postal service. And he wasn't simply known as a king. He was actually referred to as a king of kings. And his name, Augustus, still used today, isn't it? For a month in the summer. Not July. You can work it out. And also his name's used for other things. When someone's got real stature and real purpose, real kind of power and they're grand, they're named as being someone who's august. That's from his name. In fact, when he died, he was declared a god by the Roman Senate to be worshipped forever and ever. So you get in a picture. There he is, quite a big deal. Caesar Augustus, proud, powerful, ambitious, the first and arguably the greatest emperor of Rome who accomplished a lot. But to do all that he did, it wasn't cheap, which meant that he came up with a plan that made the poll tax look like a really nice idea. He made taxation a whole new art form in this part of the world. And that was the reason for the decree that we heard. To establish a budget and work out when, where, and who he could tax. Everybody was recorded. Everybody taxed. And so we read. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. It's really, it's really actually an amazing decree that Caesar makes. He's so powerful that when he lifts his finger, millions of people's lives are changed and altered. He makes a decree, and hundreds of thousands of people have to move and travel to their own town of origin in order to register for the census. It was a massive inconvenience. It's a massive deal for the people of that world. Most people, remember, were, were day laborers, which meant that if you don't work, you don't eat. So to take a journey like this took money that they didn't have. But they didn't have a choice. If Caesar said take a trip, then you had to. That was the deal. That was who he was. And so that's the situation that faced this young engaged couple, Mary and Joseph. That's the backstory. Part of the backstory. Roads crowded with countless poor souls traveling. And let's remember, it's the worst possible time for Mary and Joseph. She's about to have a baby, for heaven's sake. She's nine months pregnant. She's got to take a 70-mile journey on a donkey. On a trip that they can't even afford. And although it's hard to imagine now, remember, this is a time before Airbnb. They couldn't book ahead they're in real trouble. You'll know the story from your school nativities, no doubt. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, who was expecting a child. And if you know the story, you know that Mary and Joseph have that baby in a manger, a feeding trough, just in this lowly stable, because there is no room, because everybody across the whole empire has been traveling. That is not plan A for them. It's a huge inconvenience brought on by a decree of a man so powerful that when he lifted his finger, the whole world moves. That's power. Augustus was a big deal. 
But there was something far more powerful at play here. Way beyond what even Augustus or Mary or Joseph could understand. For Augustus, who thought he was in control of things, had no idea how out of control he actually was. And for Joseph and Mary, who felt like life was really out of control for them, they had no idea how in control their circumstances actually were. Because behind the whole story was not just one king called the King of Kings, but the true King of Kings. Behind this whole story wasn't just a man who would be memorized as a god for a while and then forgotten, but was the one true God who's behind everything. Because the grand mover behind this whole story wasn't Augustus pointing here, but God who's pointing to something far more incredible, something far more amazing. Matthew lets us know in his account. Matthew, one of the friends of Jesus who wrote an account of Jesus' experience and his experience with him in the Bible, he kind of explains in the whole narrative the power, uh, the trip on kind of what's, what's everything that's going on. And the inconvenient trip for Mary and Joseph was actually a God made a prophecy some hundreds of years before about the birth of Jesus. And this prophecy explained that Jesus needed to be born in Bethlehem and that God was going to maneuver situations to get the mother of Jesus to Bethlehem. Matthew quotes this prophecy from the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. This is the promise from God. But you, Bethlehem, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over all, whose origins are from of old, whose ancient from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of God, in the majesty of the name of God. And under him they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This is, this is a promise talking about the Messiah, the king who was to come. And that he was going to be born in this relatively insignificant town called Bethlehem. The Jewish kind of people at the time puzzled over this. Bethlehem seemed like nowhere. But the promise was made. And for this to actually happen, pregnant Mary needed to be where? She needed to be in Bethlehem. Right where Caesar's decrees sent them. Joseph's hometown. So Augustus here was being used by God even though he didn't know it. Augustus was furthering God's kingdom, this incredible story and further in the kingdom of another king he had no clue about. Augustus felt like he was the big man and in complete control, but he had no idea how small in comparison he really was. And I guess for us in the know, it's easy to look at a man like that with his laurel leaf on and laugh at him. He thinks he's so in control, and really he's not. The problem is, for you and me, we have often have the same problem. I like to be in control of things. I know that. And the truth is, you probably do too. We're all a bit control freaks in our own ways, different ways. We just have different ways of showing it, perhaps. Part of that desire for control is because, I think, so often the world feels wildly out of control. For Joseph and Mary, life would have felt, I think, really quite scary. How could stopping work, taking a 70-mile journey that they can't afford, with a wife who's nine months pregnant... And a baby that's so important, angels make announcements about it. How could this be God's plan for me to have to travel on a donkey to Bethlehem? And we see nativity scenes, don't we, of Mary and Joseph being so peaceful and happy on the journey. I don't think it would have been like that at all. I think it would have been scary, painful, and really, really worrying for them. 
All evidence pointed to Augustus being in control, causing what looked like a disruption to God's plan for them. But actually, God was in control. And you know, when we look at our world, when we read the news, when we see what's happening right now, it's easy to conclude the same. We look at world events, we look at our political leaders, we look at global circumstances, we look at the environment and politics and Brexit arguments and financial predictions and wars and rumours of wars. And sometimes it feels like, well, who's in control of all this? It doesn't feel like anyone is. It's all out of control. It's either controlled by evil or else there's just no one at the wheel at all. But the news of the Christmas story, I'd suggest, is that there is a God who is in control and ultimately gets his good and perfect will done. Maybe some of you feel like you're on some confusing donkey ride at the moment in life, where life circumstances just don't make any sense to you. Maybe you wonder if anyone's in control, because it doesn't feel like it. But I want to finish with two certain realities that I believe are really important for us to think about in this Advent season. And perhaps as you leave tonight, you'll have an opportunity to think about it and come back to them. These are two realities that I've come to really find and discover for myself. And I guess for us in church here at St. Thomas of Becket and St. Matthew's, God is actually in control. And God is completely good. He is in control. And he's a God who can be trusted because he's good. He's good all the time. And if that's true, if those two truths are real, then maybe we can begin to experience a deep, lasting peace and hope no matter what the circumstances are. Jesus came into this world as a baby. Not to simply be a great charismatic teacher or an orator or a lovely example of good living. He didn't come to start a religion. He wasn't interested in starting an institution or setting up a religious body. He didn't come to take over. He didn't come to demand anything of us at all, or like Augustus here, to point and command. He didn't come to do that. Jesus came for one purpose as a baby, to grow into a man. He was sent by the Father to show us that God, our Father, is in control and extravagantly loves us because he's good all the time. Loves us so imaginably vastly enough to rupture the power of brokenness of this world by the sending of the greatest gift we could ever know, his own son, Jesus. Jesus came for you, whatever your history, whatever your story, whatever your struggles, whatever your fears, whatever your doubts. That's the miracle of the Christmas story for every single one of us. A backstory that has a part and place made specifically for you, with you in mind. So I finish by saying this, for those who love to be in control, for those of us who love to be in control, maybe in these closing minutes, as we sing our final couple of songs, maybe we'd be willing to lighten your grip over your life and your plans so that you can experience God's help, his goodness and his presence. And maybe for those, some who are wondering, well, is anyone in control? Is God really out there at all? There may be, in a moment, just as I close and pray, you can be still and just ask God to lift your head above the confusion and above your circumstances, above your fears, to see if he's really there, to see him, the God who is always good, who's truly in control and who loves you so much more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, in this Christmas season, we remember 
as we begin Advent, as we begin to think about the coming of the King, we remember, Jesus, that you came into this world vulnerable, seemingly insignificant, but you came as a King. And as the kings came and honoured you and worshipped you with their gifts and the shepherds heard the incredible good news about you, Lord, thank you that unlike sometimes if we come into the cinema late and we miss the story, we're never too late to come in and understand the goodness that you offer to us. You help us catch up with the story. You help us understand the narrative. And you help us encounter you, the masterpiece of all creation. So, Jesus, we cast our fears onto you, our uncertainties, our control. And we ask somehow in this Advent season that we'd experience your grace, your touch, your love in a whole new way. That we begin to understand the miracle of the Christmas story, your coming into this world. Amen.